Heavenly Father, we bow here in your presence once again. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you, Father, for just the blessings of being part of your family. Now, I pray that as we look into the Word that you would open it up for us. Apply it to our hearts, Father, and challenge us as your children. And Lord, if there is one here today that may not know you as their Savior, that before this day is finished, they would put their faith in you and be saved, be one of your children. So Lord, we thank you for your many blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all be seated? Well, I want to thank all of those guys that sang the special. They did a great job. Um, Some of you may not have known, but the three on this side of the stage were sisters. And so uh, it was quite a special thing to have the sisters up here together. Uh, The title of this message is Signed, Sealed, Delivered. Now, one of the guys brought it up this morning. We were sitting out there in the foyer in our corner of wisdom over there. And uh, one of them brought up, haven't I heard that before, a, a, t- a song? I said, yeah, it's an old song. And we were trying to figure out who sang it. Does anybody know who sang signs? Who? Who? I can... Peter Frampton. Was he the writer? Because um, who were we singing? Stevie Wonder sang it. Stevie Wonder is the one we remember singing it. And I thought to myself, we should have gotten a group up here to sing that right before I spoke. Sign, seal, deliver. Um, but anyway, we won't go there, and uh, you don't want to hear me sing. Last week, we were beginning the series in Ephesians, and I was telling you that I, that, that sort of came into being because I wanted to do a series on family. And a lot of the passages that deal with marriage and children were in Ephesians, and I thought, well, I'd rather set the stage for that by going through the first part of the book rather than skipping it. So we're just going to do a series in Ephesians, and toward the last three chapters when we get there, we're going to be dealing a lot with family and relationships, issues, and things like that. Last week, we talked about the spiritual blessings that God has given us, and it's different than uh, physical blessings. They're not tangible, but they are nonetheless true. For example, God chose you before creation. He declared you to be holy and blameless. Even though you're not, he declared you to be. He adopted you as his child. He redeemed you by his blood. He has forgiven you all your sins. And he's lavished grace on you. Now, that's just what we talked about last week. Those are the blessings that, according to the scripture, are true of you. Now, that's your identity. That's who you are. It doesn't matter what you think of it. It doesn't matter what you feel in regards to it. It is a fact. Nothing changes it. It is something that God says is true of you and me, and um, you and I need to understand it. And it's kind of hard to because these are things that you can't put your hands on, you can't see, you can't touch, but they are spiritual truths having to do with your identity and who you are. Now, some of you may be right now lacking peace in your life. You may be lacking assurance in your life. You may be lacking joy in your life for any number of reasons. But if you're ever going to experience these things, then you need to understand as a believer in Christ, you have to understand who you are. You have to know that. and You have to believe it because it's in that identity. And knowing it, not just the fact that it's there, but you've got to know it in order to experience the joy and the peace and the assurance and all the other things that God has for you. Because until you do that, it's like a prince living as a pauper until you come to realize the truth of who God is and what he's done for you. Now, some people say that the way to peace and is through self-acceptance. 
that you've got to forgive yourself and accept yourself, and then you'll have peace. That's not really true, because the Bible has told us differently. Um, if you are haunted by guilt and insecurity then you, and cannot seem to forgive yourself, as we're told for the past, there's a good chance that you just simply don't understand God's forgiveness. Now, I'm talking to you as a believer, okay? There are many times we as believers, we come to faith in Christ, we believe what we understand, and we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We understand that. We put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we're his child. But there are so many other things that we just don't understand. Nobody's ever told us. Nobody's ever explained them to us. And if you're haunted by guilt and insecurity and all these things, then maybe, just maybe, there's a good chance you don't understand who you are and you don't understand what God has done. Because you see, the moment you understand that God accepts you in Christ, then you have no right to think anything less of yourself. Now think about that. The moment you understand that, then you do not have the right to think anything less of yourself than who God says you are. It's like a slap in the face to God. It's like, well, you know, I I don't quite understand it, and I'm not going to put forth the effort to understand it, and I just, you know, keep struggling and trying and hoping God will love me, accept me, forgive me, and cleanse me, and all these other things. And God says, man, you're just spitting in my face. Because here I've told you in the Word what I've done for you. I've told you in the Word who you are. And here you are, and you will not believe it, and you have no right to think that in relation to what I've told you. So today what we're going to be doing is continuing the, the look, if you will, the examination in Scripture of the spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ. These are the things, like I said, that continue to be true whether you fully understand it, whether you agree with it, whether you like it, whether you dislike it, or whether you feel any different. It doesn't change the fact that they're real. And it doesn't change the fact that this is what God has said. Let's jump into the text. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14, these four verses. Let me begin with verse 11. It says, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, what I'm focusing in on is this last part, really. God working out everything in the purpose of his will. Now, what does that tell me? That tells me this, that as a child of God, that God has got a plan for me, that God has got a plan for you. The plan was set into, uh, wasn't really set into motion, but it came into being before creation and and was set into motion the moment you were born. But it says that God's got a plan for me, which encompasses all of the bad things that have happened in life. It encompasses all of the suffering, all of the hurt, and all of the pain. You know, we've talked about this before, and people are always asking this question, does God cause bad things to happen to good people? And you can go back and forth on that question all day long, and it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Because here's the thing. God says that sin entered the world, the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, and from that point on, man just does it to himself. And evil things happen to good people because there's evil people in the world. And you say to yourself, well, couldn't God have stopped it? And God says, yeah, I could have stopped it, but that wasn't part of my plan. And God says, for you, as my child, I have a plan for you that includes and encompasses all of the pain and all of the heartache and all of the disasters that happen in life. 
But here's my plan. That according to the plan of, of him, this is in verse 11, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, is saying to you and me that God is going to work out everything according to the way he wants it. Now, look at the next verse so we can tie this together, okay? In verse 12 it says, In order that, now here's the reason he does it, In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. In other words, the things that are happening in your life, good or bad, right or wrong, pleasant or unpleasant, God says, I've got a plan, I've got a purpose. And I'm going to work in your life and people are going to see me working in your life and I'm going to heal you and I'm going to restore you if you go along with this. And I'm going to change you and the world is going to look at you and they're going to marvel at me because it's going to be done for the praise of my glory to you in spite of what's happened to you. Now listen to me very carefully, okay? This is not just going to happen automatically. Because you see, God says to you and me, there's a pathway to this. There's a pathway as a believer for you to have this restoration. For me to work in your life and to bring about good out of all the things that are bad in your life. I can do that, he says. And that's my plan. But you've got to quit getting in the way. So you've got to quit shooting yourself in the foot. You've got to quit making stupid decisions. And all through Scripture, we're told that we surrender to Him, that we submit to Him, that we yield to Him. And God says, I can take that mess and straighten it out to the glory of myself. And all the world will see that. But so many of us as Christians prefer, I don't know if it's really a preference or we just don't know any better. We live down in the gutter. And we just endure. And we just get by. And we just make it another day. And we're miserable. And God says, you don't have to live that way. Because if you choose to walk with me, I've got a plan for you. And it'll come to fruition. And for us as believers, that's what we're called to do. But the point of what he's saying here in these two verses is that you and I have been chosen by God and predestined to this plan that he's given us. And it can be a wonderful thing, regardless of what has happened to you. God can change. God can, as it says in the Old Testament, he says, I can restore what was eaten by the locust. I can do that. But that calls for you to walk with me in obedience to what I'm doing and submit to that. That's for us as believers. This has nothing to do with salvation. This, has, this is what God is saying he has done in relation to us who are in Christ. And we can, we can experience it if we walk with him and enter into this plan that he's got. But now we're going to be looking, starting with verses 13 and 14 now. We're going to be looking at part of the spiritual blessings that God has given us. Here's what he says in verse 13. And you also were included in Christ. Now this is talking about your salvation. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. There's that phrase, to the praise of his glory again. He's telling you that everything I have done for you in relation to your identity, what I have shaped and molded and worked in your life, all that I want to achieve is to the praise of my glory. That's why I'm doing it. Let me read it again, okay? The same two verses. I want you to get this. So don't think about where you're going for lunch. Just look at the verse. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Now what does it say? Well, let's look at it, okay? First of all, I want to talk about the gospel message because he spells it out here for you. There are three truths concerning you when you came to Christ, okay? Three things that were true of you when you came to Christ that pertain to the gospel message. Number one, you heard the truth. In verse 13, he says that you heard the truth. You heard the message of truth. That's the first step. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing the word. You either heard it preached, you read it in the Bible, somewhere you got it, somehow you heard it, it came to you, the word of truth, the true gospel. Now the emphasis here is on the word truth. You heard the message of truth. It wasn't a mixed message. Now guys, I've told you this, I've gone through this so many times. Sometimes I feel like Moses. You know, it's like herding cats to get people to see things. and I'll, I'll preach a sermon, and then a week later, somebody will be out in the foyer and say something the exact opposite, and I just, I, just, I give up. You know? But here, let's go, let's go it one more time, okay, as we look at this, this passage of Scripture. The gospel message is the truth, but too many times we as Christians give a mixed message. What we do is we'll mix a little bit of the truth and a little bit of lie and call it the gospel. Let me give you some examples. We either say or we imply that somehow, you've heard this before, well, I asked somebody when they became a believer, when they were saved, well, I was saved when I walked down the aisle at the church. I'll say, no, you weren't. I said, tell me when you were saved and what's the circumstance. I walked down the aisle, man. I got saved down there. The preacher said, come up here and get saved. I went up there and I got saved. Okay, so what'd you do? Well, I walked down the aisle. Okay, this is going around in circles. So you obviously don't understand what you did. You don't understand what happened. But yet, now listen to me. Even though not one person in history has ever been saved walking down an aisle, we imply that. We imply that or state that outright sometimes in the way we present the gospel, in the way we give our testimony. When we should have said, you know what, the preacher was talking about faith. I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I just got up and walked down there and told him I wanted to tell the world I was a Christian. That's different. Mixed message. We say, well, I prayed the prayer. That's how I got saved. I said, no, it wasn't. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you're saved when you pray a prayer. So how did you get saved? When did you come to Christ? Man, I prayed the prayer. 
The guy told me, I prayed the prayer, I repeated after him, I was saved. Voila. No, you weren't. You might have been saved either before or after, somewhere in there, when you put your faith in Christ, when you believe the message, but your prayer was just a response. <clears throat> prayer has never saved anybody. It's the faith that leads them to prayer that saves them. And so at some point, you come to the realization that you need a Savior. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you're praying to God and confessing what you've done, that I have put my faith in you. I've had people tell me this, Pastor, I, when did you become a Christian? I became a Christian when I, you know, you walk down the aisle or you talk to the preacher, and I just surrendered everything. What does that mean? What did you surrender? What does that mean? I gave it all up. Turned over a new leaf. Became a different person. I was doing this and now I'm not doing that and God saved me. All right, what if you go back to doing that again? Well, I don't know. Well, don't you think you ought to figure that one out? You know, that's an important question. Mixed message. Because sometimes we think that salvation is promising God you're not going to do it again. Giving it all up and changing your life and turning over a new leaf and God just saved you because of what you did. Paul says here that you were saved when you heard the message of truth. The truth. Not a mixed message. Nowhere are you going to find in the Bible where a person is saved by faith plus something. Faith plus works. Faith plus walking an aisle. Faith plus praying a prayer. Faith plus anything. That's not the way people are saved. But yet we imply by the way we present it and both in the way we give a testimony that I was saved because I did fill in the blank. And you weren't. Because he says right here in verse 13, here's the second step to this process of coming to Christ. You believed the truth. You believed the truth. In verse 13 he says, not only did you hear the message, but when you believed. When you believed, then God moved. Then God did something. We'll talk about that in a minute. There are no works involved. There's no righteousness on your part. There's no promising God to do something different. You see, we are mixed, sending a mixed message when we deviate from that simple truth. That Jesus died for you. Jesus took your place. Jesus paid for your sin. And all, the only thing that God does is turn to you and say to you, Will you believe it? Will you believe it? What in the world is belief anyway? You know, everybody gets hung up on that. Well, maybe belief means something different. No, it just means belief. Maybe faith has is, is got some hidden meaning. No, it's just faith. Don't try to make it something that it's not. It's an interesting verse. Go back up to verse 12 for just a moment. It says, In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ... Now, Paul is saying this, when we came to Christ, we who are now believers, he says we put our hope in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it just simply means it's another way of looking at faith. Faith means this. Hope doesn't mean you're wishing for something. Hope is assurance. Hope is trust. When I trust in something, then my hope is in it. My my assurance is in it. I have something to look forward to because I know this is true. That's what hope in the Bible means. And this is the way he explains it here. You put your hope in Christ. You put your faith in him. Now you have the assurance 
that God did what he said he was going to do. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I got confidence in it because I'm putting my trust in it. I'm believing it. I am confident that it's real. And I have the assurance in something even though I can't see it. God said to me in his word, my son went to the cross for you. He shed his blood for you. And if you will put your faith in him, no strings attached. Believe it. Believe it. It's true. No strings attached. I'll give you as a gift eternal life. And I'll forgive you. And all of the things we looked at last week, I'm going to adopt you. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. And I am pouring out lavishly grace all over you. All of that happens to you then. But there's one more thing that happens to you. And all this is good. Now don't you miss it, okay? Wake up. Listen to me. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's look here at verse 13. He says that, let me read it for you. He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So what is it saying? Because here again, this is one of those theological things, you know, that we, we tend to just shut our mind to. That doesn't pertain to me right now. It doesn't affect my life right now. So, eh, I don't want to, it doesn't matter. It's not important. It, does, it, it is very important. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is what changes your life now, if you believe it. It changes everything. This whole thing about being sealed. A seal was something that the king would do, which he would take the wax and put his signet ring in it, and whatever it was, be it a document, a letter, or even the seal they put over Jesus' tomb, somehow they sealed it to say, anyone that breaks the seal will be put to death, because this is securing for the king this item until it is opened by its rightful owner. This is a strong act. This is depicting something that secures something. It is something that is very, very important. And he says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. When you became a Christian, when you heard the message, that clear truth, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God moved in and indwelt you. You may not have felt it, you may not understand it, but it doesn't matter because God said, I did it. I did it. And the Spirit of God lives in you. Every one of us who has put their faith in Jesus Christ is sealed by the Spirit. Now, here's the question. What is the significance of that? What is the significance of it? You were sealed for a reason. Why? What's the reason? So listen, okay? Just listen. Number one, you were sealed to guarantee your future. You were sealed by God to guarantee your future. Verse 14, it says that the Spirit was given who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of God's people. 
In other words, when he comes back to get you, is what it's talking about. Now, let me paint you the picture and show you what, how this works, okay? Let's go back. I told you before, this, this word redemption has to do with slave market. And a person would be on the blocks to be sold as a slave, and somebody, a kinsman of theirs, in the Old Testament referred to as a kinsman redeemer, would come and say, okay, I'll pay their debt. Now, here's what would happen. He'd be down in the slave market, and everything's getting auctioned off. And he would say, I want that one because that's the one I'm purchasing today. And he would give a deposit in order to go back and get his money because that's a lot of money to be carrying around. So he'd give the deposit. And the guy that owned the slave or held the debt on the slave would take the deposit, and this deposit became a guarantee that the man is coming back to get what he bought. He guaranteed it. When... Paul tells you in this passage that God has sent His Spirit to live in you the moment you believed, and that Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance until He comes back to get you. So here we are, you and I, we're waiting on the owner to bring back or to come back and get us. And he's saying, God is giving you this as the deposit, guaranteeing until he comes back to get you. Someday he will. Either you'll die or the second coming will occur and he'll come back to get you. But until then, you are secure. Now this is important because how many of you, in this way we think as human beings, think to yourself, now wait a minute. The Bible tells me that I'm saved by faith, but that really seems so simple and an insult to God. So there's got to be something I must do. There's got to be something I can do. And so we think to ourselves, I've got to do this in order for God to keep on saving me. I've got to do this so that he doesn't throw me back. And I've got to keep on keeping on until... God finally takes me home because somehow in the balance I'm going to be weighed in the end and everything's going to be up for grabs and I might be lost in the end. That's how we think. That's because you don't understand your identity. Because God said, I put a deposit on you. The blood of my son paid the debt. I put my spirit in you as a deposit and I promise you I'm going to come back and get you. But God, what if? What if I'm not on the straight and narrow when you come back? You're still mine. I put a deposit on you. I bought you with a prize. I've put my spirit in you. I've made you my son. I've forgiven all your sins. I've lavished my grace upon you. Just tell me, what have I got to do to get you to understand that? How do I, how do I get that to sink in, God says? But one of the things that the Spirit of God living in you guarantees is that He's going to come back to get me. It guarantees my future. Now let me move quickly. Here's the second thing that it is given for, what it proves. To give you a taste of what's coming. You were sealed in order to give you a taste of what's coming. Now the Holy Spirit living in you is a taste of what's coming. You know, when Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to go and I'm going to send somebody back, the Spirit. He's going to be the comforter. And He will comfort you and guide you and lead you and encourage you and all the things that the Holy Spirit does. And every time the Spirit of God moves in your life, it's a little taste of what heaven's going to be like. 
just a little taste of what it's going to be like. Right now, I feel God in my spirit because the Bible says the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that he's there and that we're the children of God. And I feel joy when I shouldn't. When the whole world's crumbling around me, I feel joy. I'm at peace when the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm still at peace. I don't feel guilt of the past because it's all gone and the Spirit of God's telling me that. He's telling me it's gone. He's telling me I'm God's. He's telling me I'm special. He's telling me that God has saved me. He's telling me I'm redeemed and forgiven. It's like being in heaven. You see, this is how you as a believer walking through a fallen and depraved world can live a different life. This is how you have peace and turmoil and how you have joy and disaster because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of heaven lives inside of you. Here's the third thing, or third reason why the sealing is so important. It shows who you belong to. It shows who you belong to. Now in verse 14, it reads this way. He says, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You're God's possession. So right now, here we are, is God's possession, living in a fallen world, and anybody that looks at you and sees the joy of the Lord on your face, sees how you can have peace in the middle of conflict and disaster, sees the hope that you have within you, they say to themselves, What's the deal with this guy? And they come to the realization that you're God's possession. God has laid claim to you. God has put his seal on you. And when they do that, they want that for themselves. Listen to what Paul said in another place in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, listen to this. It's in verses 19 through 20. He says this, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That's just what we've been talking about. Who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He says, look, you've been bought. You're not your own anymore. And you and I have a responsibility now to let people that we come in contact with every day see the love of God in us, see the power of God in us, see the peace of God in us. And when we do, we're like a magnet to people who don't know the Lord. We honor Him in our bodies. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Him. We're His possession. Now guys... Listen to me very carefully. Because if before the beginning of time, God set all this in his plan into motion, and it came to fruition with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, and when you came along 2,000 years later and you came to the point of faith and you understood the truth, you heard it, you put your faith in it, and God says, that's it, you're mine. And I give you my spirit and I've given you all these spiritual blessings and I've laid claim to you and I have a plan for you and all of this. You tell me what you could ever do to change what God has done. 
but yet some of you will still believe that. Some of you will still, a month from now, talk about how that you're afraid that God won't love you anymore because of some terrible thing you did. You're afraid that you might lose your salvation because of some horrible thing in your life. And I'm telling you, based on the authority of God's word, that you are his and nothing in this world can ever change that. And if you want peace, if you want assurance, if you want courage to stand up boldly and proclaim the truth, if you want to love people that are unlovable, have joy in your heart, and look forward to the future with anticipation, then you had better come to realize who you are in Christ. Stop living like a pauper. Because that is not what God wants. So what do we do? Well, the only thing we can do, we serve him because we've been called to that as his children. You see, this is where the serving and the obeying and the works all come into play after that as his child. Because he's laid claim to me. I don't do it in order to become his child. We're going to talk more about this, especially in chapter 2. But right now, the only two things that I can think of that you and I are called to do now, given this truth, I serve him and I worship him. I serve him because I know what he's done and what he's expecting of me, but I worship him because I realize who I am. And we're going to partake of communion here in a moment. And you're going to hold in your hand the juice and the bread, and it's going to represent the body and the blood of Christ. And we take this in remembrance of him to honor him, and it's an act of worship. But today, I want you to come to grips with who you are. And as you hold on to this, I want this to be an act of worship on your part where you quietly sit there before God and you just thank him for the spiritual blessings that we've talked about. Thank him for who he has declared you to be. Now, please don't muddy up the waters with what's really going on in your life, because right now that doesn't matter. There may be sin that needs to be confessed, and that's, this will be the time to do it. There may be things going on in your life that you're scared of for and worried about, and that's fine, but you know what? This is the time when you come before God, and in a very tangible way, you worship him and thank him for his plan and what he's done and who he says you are. And this should be your prayer. And this is what you're asking for, okay? I want you to ask God to help you realize that. To help you realize the depth of his love for you and what he has done for you. You want to feel it. And you pray that way, God, help me, help me to see it and to feel it. I want this to become a reality. I want to take it out of the pages of Scripture where in some of our minds it's just theology. And I want it to be real in me. I want to feel it. And so, God, I'm asking you. I'm asking you as we stand here on behalf of all of us gathered here today. God, may we be absolutely certain of who we are in Christ, and may we feel your presence. So as we do this today, I'm going to ask the men to come forward. If they would, come on down. And just sit quietly. We'll hand out the elements, and as you partake, we're going to partake together. But I want you in the meantime to be praying. 
just what I've asked you to pray for. And as God opens up to you and as God begins to reveal things about you, then confess or praise or whatever needs to be done. But we're focusing in on our identity and who we are in Christ. The Bible says that they gathered there in the upper room that night. And hours before he would be crucified, and he passed the bread and told them to take and eat. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He said, and often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. And so as we come here today, we are remembering and praising and worshiping him for what he did for us, what he set in motion before time ever began. Let's thank him, but also let us remember the magnitude of what he's done. In Jesus' name, I speak this. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow before you today, we are humbled that you would love us this much, that you would do this for us. And Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for your body that was broken, that bore our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible also says that same night he took the cup and he passed it to each of the disciples. He says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. And as often as you do this, drink this, then do this in remembrance of me. Today as we partake together, we remember the blood that was shed for us, the blood that gives salvation. It gives us forgiveness. Jesus' blood paid all of our debt. Let's take in remembrance of him. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us, the blood of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for our salvation. Lord, I pray for everyone that is here that not only would we have put our faith in you already, but Father, that we would understand the meaning of all that is entailed in that, all the blessings you give us. May we know who we are, and may it change our life forever. In Jesus' name, amen.